Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risks and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha, your host and the principal of Adam and Teen Energy. Uh, you all know, as regular listeners, that everyone in the industry is facing a massive disruption. So this season, I've been talking to leaders who are actually becoming disruptors themselves. So today's guest needs no introduction, particularly in this capacity. Scott Sheffield, who is the founder and CEO of Pioneer Natural resources company has put a huge emphasis on sustainability. He has been a game-changing leader at the company since its start in 1997. He has also been a big influence in our nation's shale revolution and a driving factor in lifting the U.S. crude oil expert ban. From his start at Amico as a reservoir engineer to his time as CEO at Parker and Parsley Petroleum, he has been a game-changing leader in the oil and gas industry. To learn more about Scott or Pioneer, check out our show notes. And to learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adam and Teen, check out our website at energythinks.com. Now, I know you're going to enjoy my upcoming conversation with game-changing leader, Scott Sheffield. Scott Sheffield, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Tisha, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Look forward to it. Wonderful. Well, I have admired your leadership for a long time, and particularly in the past few years, you have been a pioneer, uh, no pun intended, uh, at putting sustainability and ESG at the top of your leadership agenda, including with peer companies and the industry at large. Can you talk a little bit about why you do that and how it's going for you? Sure. I have to give credit to a, a couple of individuals that educated me to start with. One is Jason Bordoff, who mm-hmm. founded the Columbia Global Energy Policy Center. And so being a, a member of Jason's executive committee, I was definitely hearing the other side of the table about issues about greenhouse gas emissions and also methane. Uh, so I have to give him credit for educating me a lot about our industry, where it comes from. So that's number one. Number two is a guy named, you probably know, Fred Krupp mm, at course. EDF. So we used them initially several years ago. And so Fred educated me a lot about methane. So I had no idea that methane was 80 times as potent, for instance. So I have to credit those. The third item, I think it's important for us to be a leader. And so obviously when I came back and saw the uh, visibility on how much flaring was still going on after I came back in um, early 19, especially in the Permian Basin, I knew the Bakken had been flaring a lot, but the Permian Basin, we were flaring over one B a day at that time when I came back. And so I, I felt like that I jumped on it on the agenda. And probably the last, last reason I'm, it's important to me is the fact that I, I own uh, a ranch outside of Santa Fe mm. and I have four and a half miles of river flowing through it and just owning land, I think you think about it also. So I put all those together is why I probably jumped on ESG sooner mm. than most companies. Well, this is such an important part of our industry leading into the energy future because a lot of historically companies have waited and been somewhat reactionary, but now we have this real opportunity for all the reasons you just identified to help chart a course and help articulate a way to lead into energy future and and taking on methane and and being a leader in ESG issues is such an important part of that. One thing we're really seeing in our work at Adam and Teen is that publicly traded companies like Pioneer are just getting a lot of investor interests, a lot of investor scrutiny. How do you think that's different for privately held companies? And do you think these kind of pressures are also going to come into the private equity space for oil and gas companies? Uh, Yes, that's a good question, Tisha. Uh, 
uh, I've been public about stating, for instance, if you look at um, the Rystad data, which they're the first company to go into the commissions in New Mexico, Texas, North Dakota, and so on, and publish um, flaring by a company. Mm -hmm. They now have a report out how much is it private equity, or not really private equity, it's private plus private equity. It's a combination of all private producers. And for instance, the Permian today, the private equity companies and private companies are flaring about 70% of the volumes today. So what's happened is that the public companies of the last two and a half years have significantly cleaned up their act and there's not enough pressure on the private companies. And so it's got a combination from the private equity sponsors. Mm. It's got to come from the banks, uh, the Wall Street banks who are financing private equity. And what's happened lastly is that that's why we've been very supportive of the, uh, we were against the rollback that President Trump did of the 16 regulations. We came out um, against that. And then secondly, we've been very supportive of what's been happened with EPA recently in the stricter regulations. I think I've been supportive of more government regulation because we tried through trade associations. We tried through state agencies, federal agencies to figure out the best way to to clean up and remove the black eye from the industry. It was an easy black eye for us to remove the, the amount of flaring and venting that we do. We could have been proactive three years ago, but we couldn't find much support. And so that leads to more federal like regulation, which we now support on the recent changes with EPA. It's really remarkable, Scott, that you have been and continue to be so public about embracing regulation. And this is part of that larger theme of you being a leader. So we do find in the oil and gas industry that companies are comfortable being fast followers. No one wants to be out front. They want the cover of their peers. And and I know this from my uh, old days at the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. You know, no one wants to stick their head too far out in these uh, environmental, sustainability, and leadership issues. But you have been doing this now really consistently. And I'm wondering what motivates you. You gave some examples before, but in your personal leadership style, it's probably pretty risky to be a leader instead of a fast follower. So can you talk a little bit about why? I've been, I'm probably the oldest serving CEO in the industry. I mean, Harold's probably longer, but I'm probably longer at a public company. So it's been uh, since 19, really since 1991 that we've been public. So you're willing to take a little bit more risk about public things that you think are right. So I don't mind sticking my neck out. I was almost fired twice back about 30 years ago before we were public. And so I just have confidence that it's the right thing to do. And so I don't mind being proactive. And it's one of the reasons that we dropped out of a one of the national agencies, trade associations for that reason, because they wouldn't move fast enough. And so I just think it you have to be confident in what you're doing, that it's right. And I think it's better for us to be a leader in regard to ESG. And so, I mean, that, that's probably the driving force. And you have to get the team behind you and the executive team behind you also. When we first started out, we were sort of average about seven, eight years ago, too. Uh, but we totally changed our mindset over the last three years to be a leader. All ESG matters. Is really impactful, Scott. I can tell you I've profiled in my weekly emails. Both of these things are true. Pioneers ESG reports, which are always, always in the past couple of years on the front end. In fact, I, I spent the last weekend reading your 2021 ESG report, which once again sets a high bar for the industry. And I think it's so critically important 
important because our industry does face unprecedented opposition. And yet there is no addressing climate change without the oil and gas industry. We just, we have the scale, we have the investment. And so your leadership actually allows other companies who maybe have less seasoned executive teams. It actually gives them the cover to do what you're doing. So this leadership that you have is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about, because of the risk of being out front, how do your investors react? And um, do you get some pushback on this kind of leadership? No, not at all. When I first came back in 19, went over to Europe uh, for the first time in probably three years for me. And every presentation with every investor started out with ESG. So that was back 19. Of course, obviously we've been shut down the last two years and Europe just opened up recently and we haven't been yet. We're getting ready to go sometime early next year. But they started, as you know, the ESG model, the changes started in Europe, whether or not we can argue that it's gone too far, obviously. And they're experiencing uh, very high energy prices today, as we all know. But the investors in the U.S., I would say it's not the first part you talk to. It's toward the end of a presentation about the company. They're still focused on returns first. I think we've seen less Europeans probably in the um, stocks, the uh, public in, U.S. public independent stock. We know that there's been a couple like Norges, the sovereign wealth fund of Norway. They sold out of most of the uh, U.S. public independence because of ESG pressure, even though they're an oil state or an oil country and rely heavily on oil and gas revenues. Most people here in the U.S., they want us to check the box. They look at our, they either have their own rating or they check the ratings for MSCI, ISS, or Sustainalytics. And they generally look at those three ratings. And so we have a commitment to continue to upgrade and get to the um, top core, top quarter quartile performance of each of those three indexes. But here they're focused on returns. I think Europeans are too. They're still focused because you can look at what's interesting is uh, it hasn't helped BP yet. BP has a totally shifted model to alternative energy, and they're still the poorest uh, performer in the upstream sector among all the majors and independents also. So there hasn't been a shift yet. So the investor is not paying. If you do make a change in your model and start allocating more capital to ESG, or then you don't see it in your stock performance at this point in time. But investors are all asking the question, but they, at the end of the day, I call it check the box. They want to make sure you're doing the right thing and producing a lo- low carbon future for them and their shareholders. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. That's our observation as well, is that a lot of ESG investing is uh, still very formula driven as opposed to investment or results um, driven. Uh, and yet your 2021 sustainability report was really, I think it, it really set a very nice expectation of looking at your carbon and your methane intensity, continuing to lead in reducing your scope one and two emissions and having an investment in energy transition funds. And, and we would foreshadow at Adamantine that investors are, particularly those institutional investors that are now under their own pressure to articulate how they're impacting change, that those steps you're taking are going to be required. It's just that you're ahead. <laughs> you're, you're ahead of those expectations. What do you think is going to be the hardest part to deliver on for ESG for your company? Yeah, I think over the next 10 years, I'm very confident that we can deliver on our uh, 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and also 75% reduction in methane intensity. The biggest challenge is getting out to 2050. We have an ambition to go to net zero. And so our biggest concern is probably the grid in Texas. Mm -hmm. Since we're in 100% Permian Basin, all on um, private land, no federal lands in West Texas, our entire asset position today, especially with the recent sell of our Delaware position, we're 100% in the Midland Basin, is that uh, with what happened last February, in the state of Texas. Right now, we're counting on going to the grid.
grid. So we're moving everything to electric from drilling, fracking, compression to the grid. Uh, right now, the grid's made up of about 65% fossil fuels in Texas. And the question is, is what happens between now and 2050 with that grid? Also, we need about somewhere between four and eight times as much power transmission as we have out in the Permian Basin. So you can imagine if we all switch overnight to drilling, fracking, and compression, there's not enough power out there. And so that's another big issue. So it's a question of how Texas deals with their own grid and whether or not they change the entire electrons move with time. Uh, Right now, nothing comes from out of the state in that regard. And so Texas has got to solve their problem first. So we can get to 65% if we get everything on the grid, but going from 65% to a lower number of fossil fuels by 2050 is going to be hard. It's either that or we're going to have to plant lots of trees or get lots of renewable credit. So I would say that's probably the, the biggest challenge that we have between now and 2050. I think you speak to how complex the energy transition is and how interconnected it is. The idea of electrify everything has become an oversimplified solution that, that we hear from activists and, and your team's work is really articulating how it's going to take community-wide efforts so that if we switch from, from one form of energy to another, we still have to decarbonize that. Super, super interesting. The 2021 shareholder proxy season held important lessons for oil and gas companies, with investors imposing new demands on targeted firms. What does all this mean for your company? Adam the Teen's latest white paper gives you our top-line proxy season insights. Download it today at energythinks.com backslash papers. That's energythinks.com backslash papers. And now, back to the show. Scott, I want to pivot a little bit. Another thing that Pioneer articulated really well in your 2021 ESG report is your diversity, equity, and inclusion aspirations and commitments. And I'm just hoping you can talk a little bit about how you think of inclusivity as part of your leadership philosophy and where you imagine that evolve, how that might evolve within Pioneer. Yeah, I mean, it started way back. Uh, We had a, like most oil and gas companies, 100% white male board. So it's got to start from the top. So I think we hired our first female director probably over 15, maybe 16 years ago. And then we've hired uh, a couple more and then we've added two more recently. And so, you know, you got to start at the top with the both the board and then the uh, management and executive teams. And so we're up to four female directors. Uh, We would like to get it at some point in time up to 50%. I just saw where EQT came out yesterday and announced that they got an award. They were one of the first energy companies at 50% female. So congratulations to EQT. We would like to get there at some point in time. We've seen the benefit of having females and diverse candidates on the board. Then you look at that. At the When I came back, uh, we promoted several uh, females and also diverse uh, leaders onto the uh, management team. And today we're essentially at 50%. And I have a target goal to be over 50% before I retire again. And, and so I think it's important. It leads to uh, a lot more discussion, a lot better thought process, obviously, than having 100% white male management team or 100% white male board, which I have been there a lot of the years over the last 30 to 40 years. So it's all been positive doing that. And we've taken, it's part of our compensation goals now. It's tied to my goals. It's tied to, um, so every management committee has their own diverse and inclusion uh, goals for each of them in their groups. I think our female workforce is up to about 25%. We're still trying to um, increase that. And so it's just part of, of being a great steward and good corporate citizen to go in that direction. 
direction. So we've tried to lead. Mm, that's wonderful. And it's especially noteworthy right now while, while our industry and all industries are struggling with both employee retention and then, of course, recruiting. One of the things where we think a lot about at Adam and Teen is our oil and gas millennial workforce because it's about 40% of our workforce. It's a very mobile workforce with high expectations. Can you talk a little bit about your general company culture and how you cultivate that? What kind of work environment you create and how that aligns with your values? Yeah, it's historically has been a more of a family atmosphere. Uh, we have very, very open communications. Uh, we have, a, we use the word respect, which we have, uh, it's really our key value, uh, respect. Really, you can look at it both ways, respect, ethics, safety, and environment. The S, the P is for personal accountability, the E is for entrepreneurship, C is for communication and teamwork and inclusion. And so we use the respect to build our core value system, but it's been a more of a family um, company in regard to the last 30 years. We end up having uh, things like ski trips, golf events, summer events, um, theater events. So we try to involve all the employees, their children, and a lot of the things that we do. We have a group called One Pioneer, and uh, it's a group made up of all the various different types of um, cultures that we have inside the company, which has worked very, very well. In regard to how to treat the millennials, we definitely have a, we've had to go through two restructurings over the last three years. Obviously, one was due to um, COVID and to call it the model change of the public independent. As you know, we're returning a lot more cash flow back to the investor, about 80% going forward versus putting it in the ground. That's why our production is flat from zero to about 5% production growth. With that restructuring, you do you do go through um, lower morale events. When you go through those two restructurings, we've had to build it back up. But because of those restructurings, we have a lower age workforce. Mm-hmm. I'm getting asked the question in regard to, for the first time, from people that are in their 20s, do I have a future in the fossil fuel industry? And so I'm a firm believer based on what's happened in regard to the last few months in regard to energy prices and sort of the what's happened with um, COVID-19 is that fossil fuel is going to be around for a long period of time. We probably won't see peak demand until sometime between 2035 to 2050. We advertise the fact that we have the longest inventory of anybody in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that helps with the millennials. There's a lot of things they can do at Pioneer. We have to give them the tools. We have to make sure they're paid very well. And what's interesting, we just did a survey. Uh, you know, if you owned an oil and gas stock the last 10 years, it hadn't been lots of fun. Mm-hmm. You had to figure out, the, you know, it goes up and down, up and down. And so it's not the greatest thing to hold as a uh, an employee because you have to know when to sell it at the top of the market or when not to sell it. But what's interesting now is that with all these dividends we're paying, when you pay out $20 billion of dividends over the next five years is what our estimated number is. The employees are starting to get refocused on the stock. A lot of them, uh, we were getting ready to go to uh, pay a lot of employees in cash instead of stock. And so their preference now is to own the stock. So I'm glad to see that come back. And we just need to have energy stability. So I hope with U.S. Shale um, not competing with OPEC and OPEC Plus, I'm hoping that we go through at least the next five years of stable oil prices, whether it's 60 to 80 or 80 to 100. I just want, we need stability to bring the investors back into this space. It's really interesting to your point that millennials are refocusing on the stock and their interest in the stock because millennials are such a unique workforce in where they're getting in their life, their, their civic, economic, and political relevance, but also in their careers are having their families. So they're also seeking that stability that you identified. And yeah, well, millennials say they prioritize again and again is having companies that are working on climate and are working on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So a lot of these goals that you're setting, it will be really interesting over time 
to see how the workforce responds, whether it's motivating and exciting, or if like investors, it's ultimately going to be the financial rewards. Do you have any um, sense so far on how employees are responding to your ESG goals? No, we had a, uh, I could tell a panel, our one pioneer group recommended for us to have a uh, panel throughout the company. We had an ESG panel. It was made up of um, Ken Thompson, our non-executive chairman, and Lori Billingsley, who's uh, we just brought on. She's a, a VP for Coca-Cola, and she's had a diversity and inclusion with Coca-Cola. And so uh, she just came on early this summer. And so those two, and then, and then we had two executive officers, Joey Hall and Mark Berg, and then um, Tyson. And we ended up having an ESG panel, and it was listened to by almost the entire company. And then we had a younger employee, female, be the moderators. And so you got to bring in one of those millennials into a little bit older panel to ask the questions and it went over very, very well. And so just educating everybody about the report, about what we're doing on ESG. And uh, I could tell in a lot of the meetings that we have in presentations, whether it's people, we move, for instance, we move the most water in the Permian Basin. We're moving almost 1.2 million barrels of water per day. And we're either um, uh, fracking with it, cycling the water, or we're disposing of it to a non-producing formation. And so our entire water team is, you know, they give great presentations of what they're doing. I think we're the first company in our sustainability report to actually give out fresh water targets where we're trying to get down to at some point in time, down to that 25% number. And then you look at the various groups that are working on methane sensors, testing with all the different groups that we're working with, people that are working on flyovers uh, with LDAR, leak detection and reporting. And so we had a, uh, we got an interesting project with um, Bechtel that we're very interested in. And uh, we're actually running a desal, desalination project out in West Texas, trying to figure out, is there another solution in regard to dealing with the water? Can we turn it into fresh water? Either uh, give it, sell it back to the farmers or put lakes around Midland, Texas. And then we got another team of young, very young chemists that are trying to decide what's in the water. So they're dissecting the water. We're finding out there's lots of minerals, rare earth minerals in the water. Uh, and so we're looking at starting up another project in that regard. And then we have another group working on solar and wind projects. So it's throughout the company and we have different groups working on different projects. So it's not about just drilling for oil and gas. And so we're creating a lot of different departments that people can move around into over time and become experts at. That's so exciting. And I'm sure it's really uh, invigorating for employees who face a, you know, a fair amount of critique in their world if they work in oil and gas to actually be a part of these ESG and innovation efforts and things like water chemistry is so exciting. Foreshadowed a lot of things where Pioneer may be the next uh, leader out front. Is there something you're really excited about, Scott, or something you can uh, anticipate for us is the next thing that Pioneer will be focusing on as an industry leader? No, uh, we own um, several uh, large ranches, the surface that we bought probably 20, 30 years ago in West Texas. And uh, we're trying to get one of these wind and solar projects on. So if we can get one of those kicked off, but I'm excited about those type projects where we actually use our surface and put in uh, alternative energy. And then we end up buying that alternative energy um, for to run our, our processing, gas processing, or to run our oil and gas well. So I'm looking forward to that. But an, the ultimate solution probably is a couple that I mentioned before, the desal project. We need a long-term solution for water out in West Texas. Uh, it's probably one of the bigger issues. And you probably definitely have heard about the seismicity that mm-hmm. we're starting to have. Uh, it's not as bad as Oklahoma, but it's definitely occurring in the Northwest portion of the uh, Midland Basin. Texas Railroad Commission has gotten stricter in that regard of reducing the ability to dispose into various formations around the Midland Basin. So water is probably one of the bigger issues. I think we saw
solve the flaring issue. We're trying to identify the right uh, methane sensor that we're going to set on various tank batteries. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that day where we'll collect the data. We can go out and fix things much quicker. So those are some of the things that we're working on. There's just not just one item, Tisha, Mm -hmm. but there's several items that I think will be the future that will lead us to the next step of producing the lowest carbon footprint in the Permian Basin. That's amazing. And I do love hearing about companies working on water because that's probably the next Achilles heel that starts getting public attention that the industry has been working on for a long time behind the scenes. Well, I want to turn to you as as an individual leader, Scott. Uh, You've been in the industry a long time. You love the industry enough to come out of retirement. Tell us about the core values that motivate you. No, it's really, uh, I've told a lot of people that uh, the board gave me about 48 hours to decide whether or not to come back about two and a half years ago. So I had a long talk with my wife and uh, it was a short, it was only lasted about 12 hours, I think. <laughs> and uh, and so we decided to come back, but obviously one of the first things I got to come back and do is work on the next succession planning. But what motivated me to come back was really, I still owned all my stock. So obviously stock ownership, the employees and also the shareholders. So that's the reason I came back and it's been uh, very interesting times. You never thought we'd have a pandemic that would last for two years. You know, the first year I came back, we had Iran attack Saudi Arabia, the largest oil facility in the world with a drone attack. Uh, we also had the largest hostile in our industry with um, Anadarko and Chevron fighting, I mean, over Oxy and Chevron fighting over Anadarko. So there's there a lot of things that have happened over the last two and a half years, but I'm very hopeful for the next five years. I think I want stability in oil prices, which I think we're going to get because mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the main drivers that's kept investors. When you look at, say, our industry had poor returns. The reason for the poor returns primarily is we've dealt with three collapses of our commodity. So no other industry has dealt with three declines. We had one in 09, we had one in 14, and we had one in early 2020. But if you look at all the other industries, whether gold or silver or uh, utilities or uh, you know uh, manufacturing, the tech sector, nobody has had three major declines in their commodity. So we need probably that stability among U.S. Shell and OPEC and OPEC, OPEC plus countries is what I'm looking forward to the most for the next several years. Uh, and that'll be the biggest driver. And if we can clean up our act from ESG, I think that'll be the biggest. I'd like to be able to retire during a time period like that, where we're cleaning up our act, we're producing low carbon barrels, and we've stabilized the oil price. Well, final question for you, Scott, that pivots off that a little bit. You described a lot of disruption. And then, of course, our industry is just facing really unprecedented layers of disruption. How do you keep yourself nimble as a leader? And do you have any advice for other leaders who are finding themselves constantly having to try to reposition from being in reactionary mode to proactive? How do you do that yourself? Yeah, no, I I set out probably 20 years ago. You have to be, you have to get to know a lot of different people. You have to have a big Rolodex and get to know a lot of people outside. Just your, you can't just stay in the office. I just made it an important point to get out, visit with people. I read a lot. When I get up, I read several newspapers and magazines. Uh, To me, it's the best time for me to read and learn. You got to visit with people. You have to be open to change. So I've been criticized for change, 
because I've changed too much, but you have to be open for change. Uh, it's probably been my reason I've survived this long. I mean, that, that's what drives me really and uh, is continue to learn. I think it's important to always continue to learn and you have to be willing to step out. You have to have a supportive board of directors and you have to definitely communicate with your board all the time uh, and treat them like true advisors, uh, each one of them. And, and that's what we do at Pioneer and have done it for a long period of time. And you have to have a great management team behind you that's supportive. You have to be open. We're definitely, I solicit opinions all the time. It's not my way or the highway. And you have to be humble and very, very open in regard to communication throughout. So I try to stress that to our entire executive leadership team. Well, that's a great note to end on, Scott. Continue to learn, be open to change, be humble. Uh, It's what makes you a great leader of the industry. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Tisha. Enjoy it very much. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Scott Sheffield for joining me. You know, it was a game-changing insight for me. It was thinking about how we each commit to staying nimble. What are the practices we take on every day to make sure that we don't get stuck in one mindset or in one echo chamber? I'd like to know what you found to be interesting and game-changing for you. So please check out our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let me know. If you like what you're hearing, take a moment, forward this podcast to a couple friends friends, um, rate and review us. Thanks so much to Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.